we at Around Grandfather Fire would like to express our solidarity for Black Lives Matter. We stand with you and every marginalized group that's seeking justice. Imagine yourself under a starry sky around the warm glow of the sacred fire as your hosts Saren Odinson, Jim Toosnames, and Caitlin Stormbreaker talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Welcome to a show inspired by those late night conversations by real life spiritual practitioners. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? to the traveler, hail to the wisdom bringer, hail to the wisdom seeker, hail to the drought master, hail to the holy one, wolf, raven, bear, hail to the holy one, man, woman, between, beyond, hail to the holy one, rune master, hangtir, gauptir, hanged one, fetter god, Hail to the Holy One, who brings wisdom, insight, inspiration, madness. Hail to the Holy One, who brings people to him, who goes and seeks the lost, who goes and brings back what's found. Hail to the Holy One, who travels every land. Hail to the Holy One, whose wolves go over every place. Hail the Holy One, whose ravens bring back every drop of knowledge. Hail, 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 Holy One. Wise One, hail to you and thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for all the wisdom you have shared, for all the wisdom that you keep, for the sacrifices that you have shown all of us how to live and I hail to you, O Holy One. Hail, O Thin. Let's do it. Welcome to another episode of Around Grandfather Fire. You're listening to episode number 66. I am Jim Two Snakes, joined as always by my good friends and co-hosts, Saren Thunson and Caitlin Stormbreaker. How are you both doing on this fine sunny day? Doing great now that the weather is finally turning to something resembling spring. I know it's probably know a false spring, but I'm still enjoying it. Right. First, first false spring, that's it. Well, I think we're like second spring false spring at this point we've got one more <laughs> third we got third winter and then finally spring and then construction so yeah all i know is the chickens are so happy to be running around the yard scratching and looking for bugs i don't think they're finding any yet but they're they're at least busy mm-hmm. i'm sure they're there <laughs> how about you sarah how are you doing i'm doing well actually um 
just stuffed my face right before getting online and uh <laughs> i've got my pop i'm ready to go um <laughs> caffeine and we're ready to go pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm i'm doing quite well i've just been busy with the patreon and putting this damn book together so oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. If, so, um a little bit looking, on the busy side yeah i'm i'm Touch really bit. excited to uh see it come to fruition because it, I think it's an important thing to talk about, especially as spiritual practitioners, not only for the new practitioners, but for the more advanced ones too, because I don't think um, that particular topic has been covered often or often enough at it's all. It certainly hasn't been covered from a polytheist or animist angle. It usually is the province of priests in the Catholic church talking about the dark night of the soul. So I'm like, uh, mm. we, we need something too. That isn't so specific. <laughs> we need one too. So, so, what about you, Jim? How are you doing? Oh, not bad at all. Can't complain too much. Like I said, it's a beautiful sunny day. Going to have a good show. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Can't get much better than that. Right. Right. Well, speaking of which, let me introduce our wonderful guest. This is Rune Hjarno Rasmussen. And I ran into Rune a, about a year or two ago through uh, Dr. Matthias Nordvig, who's like, oh, well, if you like this stuff, you should definitely check out this stuff and have him on. I said, okay. Um, Rune has put together a, an incredible uh, calendar, which is one of the first projects I saw him put together. Um, the animist the nordic animist calendar you can find him at nordicanimism.com wonderful website i have the book and the calendar and uh there are wonderful pieces of art as well as tools for divination and understanding where you are in life so i really appreciate you willing to come on and take time out of your wonderful day i know the time difference is a hell of a thing (laughs) i really appreciate you coming on thanks a lot for the welcome i'm happy happy to be here (laughs) so a little bit of uh, background. You first got into looking at animism through your studies of Condomblé, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. I did, I did a PhD on uh, Condomblé, uh, which is the, an Afro-Brazilian uh, Orisha religion, um, similar to what many uh, North Americans uh, probably know as Santeria, which is a Cuban modality, a very similar uh, kind of religion. Yeah. Awesome. So. Where did you find the through line from the animism you were studying into the animism that you're now putting out to the world through traditional European knowledge and Nordic animism? How, where did you find that thread? Because I find it fascinating. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question, actually. Um, well, here's the shit. You know, uh, enslaved Africans faced some of the most uh, dire uh, uh, patterns of oppression that hum- that I think humans have, have experienced. Uh, and they went very, very uh, close contact with modernity and modernity in very oppressive ways. That means that exactly these people, uh, people from specific areas in West Africa, they... Um, actualized their cultural heritage in very, very effective ways in countering modernity. They created uh, what many people call counter-modernity. It's not an attempt 
so much to project themselves back in time to a pre-colonial time is more of a seated in modernity way of, of producing cultural resilience. Now, that exactly how to do that, that was the, the object of uh, why, how I studied Kanombe, how these people are doing that. Now, I believe so th that the way these people are doing it is probably some of the most competent and effective ways of creating counter-modernity that humanity has produced. That also means that this way, the, these strategies are being adopted. For instance, you see Native American peoples in, in uh, uh, South America who are adopting actually Afro-Brazilian uh, candomblé uh, technologies or Umbanda technologies in order to produce, uh, create contact with their own ancestrality. So they, they're using these strategies to, uh, to uh, you, know, you could say, re-indigenize themselves or decolonize their own reality. And that's basically what I'm trying to do. So and it's not necessarily always very visible if you listen to my videos, uh, because because I'm sort of I'm sort of presenting what I'm presenting is in a sense it's it, it, it's in a sense some of it is playful and trickster like in in the way it's playful, uh, and that's also actually part of that point. Uh, but it might be more of the result of those reflections in in some ways than it is a presentation of them right did that make sense so i'm sort of i, I mean I, I i lived in in brazil for a long time and basically lived in kamenbe temples and i came with with uh, with contemporary scholarship to these people however contemporary scholarship has sort of been turning animist What happened since the mid 20th century was that uh, that like the American particular thread of anthropology had already been very progressive in its way of thinking about reality, actually from quite early on, where Europeans were kind of stuck a little bit in, in very sort of evolutionist scientific racism and so on. The the American anthropology was very forward thinking. And, and, and uh, from the mid uh, 20th century, uh, Uh, there was a guy called Irving Hallowell who studied uh, a nation of people who at that time was called the Ojibwe. Um, and he, he, was, he was one of the guys who started basically saying, well, we should think about what these people say as a valid contribution, as a valid philosophical contribution to human knowledge, not as something that is backwards and savage or some whatever people are used to either explicitly or in, in, in slightly underplayed ways, <laughs> have been saying through... Not very underplayed at all sometimes, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> in, many in, in many situations back in the day, not underplayed at all, but I think it, it, th these attitudes survived quite a long time in scholarship in underplayed ways. So, so that is the animist idea in, in anthropology, that you start basically saying, saying, okay, so perhaps Native Americans were right and we were wrong, You know, there is actually a spirit in the tree. It was just our, it, we were the ones who were primitive. It's our conception of subjectivity that was a little bit too reductive and primitive. Uh, and we can, we can amend that. So that was the kind of anthropology that I went to these people with in Brazil. So, and that also meant that I came to them uh, not in order to explain them, but more to learn from them, authentically learn from them. Um, so, 
and what uh, what I was trying to learn was how how to produce counter modernity, how to how to produce alternate uh, reality for re-engaging traditional uh, knowledge or, or maintaining contact with traditional knowledge and traditional religiosities. So you're, you're decolonizing Nordic spirituality via Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> some, so, something along, something along, I mean, something along yeah. those lines. I, right. I think, I think these, I think the, the um, Afro-descendant strategies for uh, decolonizing our reality, basically. Uh, so it's it's not that there are maybe senses. And, I mean, we're white people. We're not decolonizable because we've never been colonized. We've been colonizers. We've never been deprived of land rights and never been put in boarding schools and all these things that that other peoples have been uh, subjected to by uh, us. But um, our reality, our perception of reality has been subjected to uh, specific um, uh, hegemon, an idea of reality that has been very powerfully implemented on us. And in some ways it has been implemented in, in, in uh, I think, very colonial ways. Uh, and this means <clears throat> that when I'm, when I'm talking about decolonizing, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm, I'm, I don't use that word a lot because it, it's important to not sort of do a whole. Can you say co- coquetry in English? It's not. It's important to not do a whole uh, kind of. Ooh, it feels sorry <laughs> for me. I've been colonized. I'm living here. I'm majority population in my expansive state. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's important to not play that game because there are actually people who, who you right. know, exactly. have been deprived exactly. of their land this rights and so on. Uh, so when, when I'm using the term decolonizing, I'm thinking specific of knowledge, the way our knowledge forms have been subjected to, uh, that we've been deprived of animist knowledge. Um, yeah, and, and how we can, how we can uh, regain, reclaim these forms of knowledge. I, I think in a way we can call it decolonization when it comes from us white people because like you said we we were the colonizers you know we were raised with this way of thinking and this way of acting and doing and it is sort of a sense of decolonizing ourselves from being a a colonizer you know changing our our thought process and getting ourselves out of that oh woe is me i live in a five bedroom house and i have a great job and i've never been subjected before in my life but i have to get away from colonization we have to get away from that that structured mindset of oh god the words are escaping me um but do you, do you understand what I'm saying? We do go through a form of decolonization, but in order for us to be able to do that, we have to take ourselves out of our own world. And I know not everybody's capable of going to live with some tribes in Brazil or in Africa or et cetera, but even just studying them through books or videos and getting to know them and their culture and how they, they really live their spirituality and how their communities grow and, and work together um, which is not at all how we do it here in America. You know, it's everyone for themselves. I don't even know who my neighbors are. Mm-hmm. That's how far we have fallen from uh, being actual humans, in my opinion. Yeah. You know? I think that, uh, totally. 
something that, that comes up again and again is the understanding that white guilt is an indulgence. And unless you do something with this, it really like what your feelings are are great and all, but unless you're processing them and putting them to an actual use, if they're getting in the way of decolonizing your mindset, it's one thing to flail about and go, Oh, woe is me. It's another thing to say, okay, I was raised with X or Y mindset and I'm going to work to excise that. Hmm. The work matters. How you get there is kind of, you know, it's your own personal journey, but the destination is getting out of this locked off mindset where the only acceptable knowledge is what has been proved, approved by the, this or that authority figure as the ultimate truth TM. I mean, I'm a polytheist. Ultimate truth is fungible. You know, I'm also an animist. Uh, who do you want to ask for the truth? The trees, the, the fungus, the humus under the earth or the sky above whose truth are you talking about? Hmm. You know, um, which to me is kind of it decolonizing the white mindset. Also it's just interesting because so much of what I'm seeing is performative and not actual, hmm. at least from the circles that I've watched it's it's less of a okay here's how here's the breakdown of how we're going to do this and this is the material effect it's going to have and that's one of the things that i appreciate your nordic animism is that it's not just hi we're going to think and be spiritual it's a lived thing Mm. because without that lived component you're basically mentally masturbating Mm -hmm. yeah i think i think like i've been thinking and uh I'm, i'm i'm always a little bit careful when i'm speaking into North American spaces because um, uh, these uh, intercultural and interracial uh, relations are so tense and everybody are also very um, advanced in their understanding of them. Um, but I've been thinking that, that the notion of, of guilt is, is problematic and that because it, it rings to me as a Protestant uh, idea, which is actually... It's actually it's turning it's turning it into ourselves as if it's something interior, something that we need, and it's and that actually makes it into an individual thing that that I need to deal with inside myself. Um, meanwhile, we don't have any guilt. It's not as individuals we are not guilty of. Uh, because it wasn't, we might be beneficiaries of, of stuff like white privilege, uh, but this is not not something that we are have individually willed into being, so so to speak. So I think I think it, it would be really functional, also from an animist perspective, to shift towards a different conceptualization, and I would focus on um, responsibility instead, instead of having this sort of interior thing we should we, we should look ah, okay so i'm beneficiary of white privilege what is there to do about it and and also in in terms of like like forgiveness and these these, these very you use the word performative i'm, I'm not sure if it's arrogant to for me to uh, apply it on this but but the idea uh, uh, that that uh, that there is a forgiveness to give and a forgiveness to receive for colonial abuses. There isn't. They're too bad. And we are not uh, in a position to receive them because we didn't personally perform them. And yes. 
ex-non-white person is not in a position to grant them because they wouldn't they are also not they might suffer uh, structural racism today but but uh, but they're not uh, they're not in, in that way the, the the full receiver of these so I don't know if it makes sense what I'm saying. So what I would I would shift the focus away from these things and onto actual relation, reconciliation, mm-hmm. responsibility, um, kind of m- more sort of face to face moral uh, ways of actually dealing with these things, rather than these sort of Protestant inflected guilt, salvation, forgiveness uh, ideas that which I feel are. Somehow, and actually, I feel that they they are in a sense part of um, reproducing reproducing the problem. And Protestantism uh, has the idea that we are all sinners, yet we should all, and, and we are irredeemably so. We are ir- irredeemably sinful, yet we should be eternally jubilant about being saved anyway. Is it a coincidence that it's the people who thought like that who ended up being? Uh, very brutal towards other people. We are sinful, but we should just go go ahead and be happy about it. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I think <clears throat> that that I that that it's important to shift out of that mindset in the way that we produce a progressive and uh, functional uh, kind uh, whiteness, perhaps, or you being Eurocentric or whatever. Uh, however, you create your uh, your identity today. I think that uh, that's a really important point. And in a lot of, especially the more secular or leftist circles, the notion of original sin is being positioned in this mindset with racism. Exactly. And it's toxic as hell. Yeah, I've been as, thinking exactly the same thing. That, so, that racism seems to be transformed into an idea of original sin. Racism wasn't the first word that came out of the mouth of God when he created the world. You know, it, it, it wasn't. It is a relatively recent invention in human history. It ought to be possible for us to, to, uh, to get it, you know, the fuck out of reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I grew up Catholic, so like the Protestant experience in America is not one that I'm I'm terribly familiar with. I got to watch it through other people's experiences, and even so, the notion uh, a lot of these Protestant notions have seeped their way into Catholicism in America, and the extreme I won't want to say religiosity because that's not what it is. I've seen extreme religiosity in Catholicism. That usually just means that you're doing a lot of rosary prayers and such like that. I, I would say you have been affected, Sarah, because Protestantism has crept its way into how we conceive and carry capitalism in this country. That's yeah. That's where I was. Yeah. It's, it's an inescapable part of swimming in this particular part of the ocean. Mm-hmm. But once you recognize that you're swimming in it, it's hard not to see it's uh Gods, I wish that the concept hadn't been like taken over by the alt right, but being like having that red pill moment of oh shit, this is reality. Um, oh, this is the waters I've been swimming in. Uh, this is the machine I've been I've been told is the ultimate thing I should be serving. It's a hell of a, a shock to the system to go from a situation where you recognize that it's not a personal failing, it's systemic. Mm-hmm. 
And that is a real shift in paradigm because once you take it out of the personal, the guilt can drop away and you can actually get oriented toward doing something about it. Because if I'm not at fault and if I'm not in that mindset of I am at fault, putting on the sleece, tightening it up and whipping my back, once I'm out of that, I need to be saved from from this stage as a white person, I can actually do something useful for everybody else that's actually suffering under the system. And, and granted, white people suffer under capitalism too, but our race isn't really a determining factor in that. You know, it's, it's one of the, the main thoroughfares of conversation that ha- seem to be needing to have over and over again, like as though white privilege means you don't suffer. It's like, no folks, that just means that your race isn't one of the main factors in why you're <laughs> suffering. Well, I think I, I understand. Uh, what was the phrase you used? Fighting modernity is that what it was? Or oh, resisting? Modernity. Yeah, I I think that is valuable. And you know, granted, I'm the one that brought up the word colonialism, so it's my bad. But I do see where there's value in using other phrases because it gets around some of the defense mechanisms that people have put up. Well, especially if if the the, the main point isn't to decolonize the, the colonizers so much as turn them towards okay, we may not be responsible for the system as it exists. What are we going to do? How do we start gaining responsibility mm. over it? Mm. Yeah, I remember thinking about it in, with, in parallel with uh, uh, thinking about uh, queer empowerment and so on. Like if you're reading queer theory, uh, queer empowerment, you don't have to be queer yourself to see the beauty in it. Uh, and to be enriched by it, and in that process, uh, uh, you're 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 learning something about your reality, right? And and so and I, I think this is this is similar with with um, uh, coming as a Eurodescendant person and and learning from colonized the perspective of, of colonized peoples or other marginalized groups. You you are you are incorporating that perspective, and you're also gaining, of course, a sensibility to the plight of these people. Um, so, yeah. I think, I think um, what you just mentioned there, like kind of immersing yourself into uh, not necessarily the queer agenda, you know, that's mistakenly used by the alt-right as a bad thing, like they're going to convert you because that's how that works. Um, but immersing yourself into that culture and seeing the beauty that's there. um, I think that is one of the steps that we need to take as individuals in within these other cultures, just to observe and understand who they are as people, because there is so much knowledge and so much beauty within all these minority groups that have been glossed over for however many years, you know, what are we missing? You know, mm-hmm. with the the oppression of the Native Americans in this country and how they're currently being treated even to this day, you know, there was so much um, empowerment and beauty within those cultures that we called savage. But now you've got white girls on TikTok using sage and saying all these Native American things and crying about not being accepted into a tribe that doesn't fucking want her. You know, instead of calling yourself an Indian princess, why don't you get to know that culture, know those teachings, and maybe you'll understand that calling yourself an Indian princess is offensive 
and it's rude and it's appropriation. You know, instead of crying about, oh, these people won't accept me, learn about them and understand why what you are doing is inappropriate and then learn how to help them, learn about their struggles, learn about what they are going through. You know, it's not just um, people that live in poverty that suffer from this. There's uh, uh, an actor named Kari Payton, um, and he's on The Walking Dead, actually. Um, And he had flown home from Georgia and he remembered, oh, I forgot to change the tags on my plate. My birthday was a month ago, but my car was in L.A. I was in Georgia. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to drive home. Well, he got pulled over and the cop asked him, where did you get this car? And he goes, I bought it. It's mine. And he goes, well, I need to see your driver's license and registration because the tags are expired and gave him the ring of morale. And he's, he's a famous actor. And just because he didn't change the tags on his vehicle, he got accosted by a police officer because he's a black man. Okay. You know, so it's not just your neighbor that is suffering from this. It's so many people in the world. Hmm. And how much are we losing by ignoring what they're saying? Hmm. How much are we losing by not allowing them a leg up and offering hmm. them like, here, here's my hand. I'm going to boost you up like a cheerleader say what you have to say and I'll catch you when you come down. Mm. You know, there, there's a lot to it and it's, it's a very difficult not to unravel, I think, mm. but the only thing we can do is take that initial step, mm. whatever direction. Yeah. And, and, and we're, I think also we're living in an age where, uh, where these voices are uh, gaining an, a very increased global um, uh, platform um, I remember uh, when, when I, was like, I was a kid, there was a book that was very prolific, even here in Northern Europe, uh, which was uh, written by, or supposedly written by a chief Seattle. And uh, I was very, uh, very uh, disappointed to learn that it was written by some hippie in the 1970s uh, who never had any proximity to any Native American culture or uh, this chief Seattle speak, which is very well known. And it, that was how it used to be. The, it, Indigenous uh, knowledge used to be something that was so non-existent that it was only represented in these sort of fake, fake ass ways. Today, man, you can, uh, I mean, I've had contact with the Aboriginal Australian uh, writer called Tyson Junkerporter, wrote this amazing book called Sand Talk. uh, And it's just like, it's so, it's so packed with humor and passion and high philosophy and activism and and uh really uh intense and and you i when when i read that book i really got the feeling of being transported into another culture's perspective on on reality and on uh uh, western urbanized civilization uh and uh that's just one example there are more i mean david kopenauer Yanomama, Yanomama Shaman from uh, from the Amazonia, um, in collaboration with an anthropologist, uh, he uh, created uh, a book called Falling Skies, where, where this total Amazonian shaman is just speaking bah, into our time with amazing voice, amazing voice, powerful, you know, and and that availability that is there today, uh, and and so so today I think we have. 
opportunity to listen to and learn from these these uh, perspectives to a completely different degree than what it used to be. You know, and I, I mean, this might be different from for you guys who are from from North America. I I come from a space here where um, there aren't indigenous populations. Uh, well. Maybe I'm one, but <laughs> but uh, uh, but it, it's uh, we, we we don't have the the proxi- we don't have the proximity to colonized uh, populations where I'm from in the same way as uh, uh, as over there. I, by the way, I don't usually use the word indigenous uh, uh, on uh, Nordic material because uh, right. I don't want to infringe on indigenous empowerment projects that rest on that concept and so on. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I mean, it's something that, that that feeling you were describing is what I ran into when I started reading Braiding Sweet Grass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent book. And uh, Gathering Sorry. Moss was an excellent book as well. And, and that uh, showing of relationship that it's not just up here or even up above the head, if you will, but it's all around internal as well as external and your relationships dictate how um we both live whether it's it's you know you're talking about you and your neighbor you and the sweet grass you and the moss you know you you cannot hive yourself off into your own little box and then pretend like you're not part of nature Hmm. that's not how human beings or any other animal species work we just happen to be really good tool builders and users and and i think the the point that was that was that you, Storm, that was making that before, that we don't know our neighbor? Uh, a point that's also been made, I think, by Norm Chomsky, that that's like the, our co- co- contemporary civilization puts us all into little boxes and put, you know, a, a flickering screen in front of us that hypnotizes us. It prevents us from from uh, uh, creating those relation makings that, that uh, can, for instance, deal with problems. Now, I think that that particular uh, sort of condition of life has been it's been all been it's as if the internet has made it an almost a cosmic condition the internet the most like uh, the the most like uh, um, uh, relational tool one of the most relational tools that humans have ever created through these processes of mirror cabinets and 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 information bubbles we are we are actually being uh, secluded from from uh, creating those relations, uh, also with also the, with the people we understand as enemies, and and, and with the people that we uh, and th- there's a breakdown of relation, uh, not only between humans and the sea, the ancient grey mounds, the stones, and and uh, and uh, the, the gods, but also between uh, humans and other humans, and and I think that is a, that that is one of the huge catastrophic uh, kind of Ragnarokian characteristics of our time that the bonds have been ruptured and and when in a way that that uh, that our uh, our whole system of creating relating is uh, and I know I know from myself I mean I'm running total cancel culture on my own uh, channel for instance uh, because I'm I'm working with Nordic uh, material and um, uh, for instance white supremacists they're just loving that shit to bits and pieces there's a powerful eco-fascist movement which is probably growing and 
and I have to have some really, really hardcore shields up against that and just like keep that stuff away in a very un- unambiguous way. Ways, but that means that I'm not relating with it. That means that I'm not I'm, I'm not creating a bond with a Fenrir. I'm not I'm, I'm not I'm not uh, uh, I'm also not investing my emotion, my intelligence, and my presence in mitigating these, uh, for instance, bigoted positions that might actually benefit or the, the humans who are uh, who are, have those ideologies might change by contact with me you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so 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 we are we're secluding ourselves from each other in in extremely i think problematic ways sometimes because we have to i mean i'm doing i'm doing it myself and i don't know a way out i don't know another way but um but we but it's sort of a sign of our time that is that is super problematic so I, I have a curious question, and I've been trying to articulate it in my mind, but sometimes I, I have to kind of talk my way through it. So how, and maybe there is no answer to this question, um, and Jim and Sarah, you guys can weigh in on it as well, because um, it's been bouncing around in my brain since we started this talk, but in in what way does animism connect to fighting racism or neo-Nazism or fascism and how can we utilize the the beliefs and concepts in the tradition of animism to kind of build a foundation to help us in that way you know because animism is essentially creating relationships with things around us within our space you know for me animism is there's life in my guitar, whether it has a spirit or not is out of the question. It has a place in my world. I accept it for what it is. It provides me many things other than music. Um, But how can we take that concept of animism and apply it to this fight that we're fighting right now against these people that choose to keep us in the past? Does that make sense? I, I might even broaden the question a little, Caitlin, and, and get it out of the narrow lane of racism and just Help, say, please. how how do we use racism, or, or not racism, uh, animism? Based on what you've learned, how are we applying animism in our lives? What's our introduction to it? And how do we use that to expand all our relations? Okay, uh, that is um, two very big questions. <laughs> um I'm good. Sorry. At Would you like me to, to jump? That's kind of a through line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh no! If you if you got something you want to to, to talk about, go for it, Rune. Uh, no, let me just let me just think a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah, I've got I've got several things to say. Um, so, from an animistic perspective, if I'm existing in relationship with other beings, there are some beings that I cannot exist in relationship with in a positive format. I will always exist in a combative or a uh, oppositional relationship. Uh, I've talked about disease before in this regard. I I cannot have a positive relationship with the coronavirus. There's a reason I mask up and I've gotten the, uh, the vaccines. It's because I cannot have a good physical relationship with that virus, even if I can relate to it as a spirit, as a being that 
lives in some capacity. Uh, I'm limiting my contact with it. <laughs> Not only for my good, but for the good of, of my communities. Um, there are similar ideologies and there are similar uh, people who I cannot associate with and carry other relationships with, you know, I, I can choose, I can either have good relationships with my fellow uh, Americans who are people of color and uh, from other minority backgrounds, or I can try to befriend the neo-Nazis. I can't really pick one or the other on this. I think the reason I, the reason I phrased the question well, like I did, Sarah, is because I kind of want to take the conversation out of the realm of conflict sure, and go under the presumption that even though we talk about it a lot, that we have not had someone that's a really uh, well-researched animist on the show. So I want to kind of take it in the direction of building because instead of conflict, if we, if we want to shift that focus a little, that's kind of where I was heading with it. Okay. So I want to know more about how to build animism and how we apply it to our thinking and how you're introducing it and, and using it to, to, to build the, the Nordic animism model. Cool. How do we use it to change our own mindset? Cool. Let, let me first start to uh, just uh, not to focus on it, but just mention a little bit the, the idea of, of uh, racism and so on. I, I don't have a very, very clear sort of bottom line. This is how animism, for instance, fights racism. Uh, however, um, animism is a, uh, in the way I'm thinking about it, is based on this idea of, of producing counter-modernity. And uh, ideologies such as uh, nationalism and uh, also uh, racism, they're very, very modern models for how to understand self, right? It, it, it's a model where I have an identity. Ident- identity, the word comes from Latin idem. It means the same. It's something inside me. And the the, the foundation of, of, of the modern perception of reality is that there is an, an enclosed inside me and then there is a dead outside me. Right, where, for instance, an animist model for uh, for community uh, would could be a um, a totemic model. We have a community that is a kinship tie that ties us together. For instance, with other beings in nature. So, it, and that reached that that it is an active thing that reaches away from me towards an other. It doesn't reach, and, and it's a concrete other raven. It's not, it doesn't reach inside me to an abstract, weird interior, like a culture or being white or something weird like that. So in that sense, I think animism is moving our foundational way of creating uh, social coherence into a different space uh, where we do it in a different way. And that also means that when you look at uh, those ways of, producing um, counter-modern spirituality that, that I've been working with, like, for instance, the, the Afro-Brazilian, then you see that, that it's, it's extremely tr- it, it's transgressive to those categories that we usually work with. It's transsexual in more ways than I can hold inside my little heteronormative head. It's, it's, it's trans-ethnic, actually, in 
very many ways. Today, what's happening is actually that, that uh, Afro-nationalism, black nationalism, is growing in, in, uh, inside Candomblé. So it's going a little bit less trans-ethnic. But, but if, if you look at, at like the kinds of Candomblé I've been studying, you find that spirits are explosively trans-ethnic. One spirit will say, well, I'm actually a mediator uh, aspect of Yansa, the storm goddess, uh, in a Yoruba house, yet I'm also a Spanish gypsy lady, and, um, and uh, I'm also belong in the Brazilian ground. I'm actually kind of a native Brazilian as well, but I only dance to Bantu African rhythms. You know, so uh, in, in that kind of way, you will get these explosively trans-ethnic uh, ideas of relating to spirit. And I think that that, that um, mode is something that will become available if we move towards an animist way of uh, perceiving ourselves and perceiving others. The, um, the uh, uh, Vikings had a had a concept that was Finns. Uh, the, the word Finnar or Finns in, in Old Norse means uh, Sami, the indigenous peoples of the northern Scandinavia. And, and, pe- the, so, so, uh, and that meant acquiring religious knowledge. People would visit the other for religious knowledge. Now, that is a quite fundamental thing, actually, in humanity, that we think about we tend to think about others as as caring as the people we can learn from. In some way, it's very fundamental. You don't learn from yourself; you learn from another <laughs> somehow, you know. And uh, and uh, and 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 you you had traditions of it, and these traditions have also, of course, been been colonially colonially inflected. So you have specific ways of orientalizing and and and. Your descendants are seeing Orientals as being this and that and this and that. Um, you have all and all these traditions of of uh, romanticizing Native Americans, uh, like you were talking about, Storm, before that 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 uh, people want to be an Indian princess and these kind of things. Uh, but but uh, but there is, I think that 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 uh, there is in animism, there is a note that you don't think about. Uh, for instance, religiosity or relating as a box of beliefs and practices that we call a religion that you sort of move into and then you live inside that one, like you've installed a new sort of operating system in your reality or something like that, Uh, but rather uh, being religious is about relating and, and, and it's about relating with, with, uh, with specific, very specific others. Now, that could be others in your, uh, in your uh, immediate environment. And I think the, the, like, for instance, you guys, uh, North Americans, uh, like, there are others in your environment. And I think that, that, uh, that creating relation both on based on what you are carrying with you as your descendants and, and perhaps diasporic, if that work, word you, the works diasporic, your descendants, but also in, in the others that are, are there. I know, um, I know of a group of people um, who are, I think they're called Nord Skogen or something like that. And these Americans, they're living somewhere in, I think it might be 
around where you guys live in Minnesota or something like that. And and they are the white North Americans, but they grew up uh, with or in very very close contact with the um, Nishinabe, I think. And 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 so they and so they they are living and they are kind of working with food sovereignty and these kind of things, and they're living homesteading in 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 in, in the kind of living with the land. So they are are working from their back their background. I think they descend from Scandinavia. They're working with their uh, their Nordic background, but merging that with the land and also merging it with stuff that the Anishinaabe has taught them. So, uh, for instance, so they go out and they collect. Is that called minwin or something like the wild rice? It is mm. part of their sort of natural cycle in the year that they go out and collect that. So that is part of their animist relation to the world, right? To the world they live in. Um, that doesn't exist in Scandinavia. So there isn't there isn't a month in the Scandinavian calendar called Wild Rice Month. But they made their own calendar. Uh, based on their uh, their knowledge of of, uh, Scandinavian, of Scandinavian reckoning, and so they merged it with their land, and and they have a month called Wild Rice Month. And I think this is a very beautiful way that these people are. They they have a very uh, conscious and respectful uh, relation with these uh, Anishinaabe that are living close. By and I think they almost grew up with them around them or something like that. I, I don't know them very well, but I just think that that is a it's an example of a very um, probably very functional way of creating an, an animist contemporary animist relation. Um, because in a sense, you know, in a sense, we are all diasporic. You know, I mean, I think that modernity ruptures us from land in ways that 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 means that that you know I, I can walk out on my father's field and I can find little pottery shops that are two thousand years old and they were made by people who are genetically and culturally and, and uh, linguistically in direct continuity with myself. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that I that I'm in 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 a Stronger connection with the with the the, be, the, um, the beings of the of the land than you guys are, who are living as a, a settled population over there. Not not really because it's modernity. It it, it is is the ruptures of our perception of reality that has implemented in the ways that 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 we know things and that we perceive things. That is where the rupture comes to being. So, so uh, I've sometimes I've been thinking that that uh, well now I'm just kind of weaving a little bit, but but that the the uh, the root answers to how we heal the the wounded world, the 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 world that is, has been what do you call it, the rest of close animist relations, that will probably spring from your side of the pond because you are. Uh, kind of as Americans, you are inherently uh, Creole mixed people, and therefore you have these these uh, uh, this kind of you come out of this shaker that that is in some way a more real image of what reality is. So the what our contemporary world looks like. So uh, so uh, the Santeria model, you know, the Candomblé model. These are American models. 
they, they are also African models, but they're certainly also very specifically American ways of dealing with that. And I think that that uh, that that also as settler uh, populations thinking along those lines might have the threads uh, that that can lead us towards healing the uh, the broken world. Yeah, that definitely does make a lot of sense. Because like you said, we're kind of in the shaker here. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're a testing kit in a lot of ways because we have such diverse uh, peoples within short geographical distances of each other that we have to figure a lot of this stuff out first. And hopefully, ideally, that would become a model that that when we get it sorted out, that other places be able to follow. I kind of like that. That's very optimistic. It's a lot more optimistic than, than the United States has been in recent years, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. You also had a little, you had a little troll that you just had to kind of deal with over there. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of optimistic. It was kind of optimistic. It was a little, yeah. Troll. Look, that troll was a very dark mirror for America to have to it look was. into. And while I absolutely despise that particular individual, which he shall not be named, but we all know who we're talking about. Um, I almost think in a way he was necessary, almost a, uh, oh, what's the turn of phrase that is at the very back of my brain it was like the last nail in the coffin, I guess, you know, we saw what direction we were going and then there he was. And we're like, oh God, this is, oh, that's wow. There's more of you than I thought. Holy shit uh okay we really need to figure this shit out um one curious wandering through my brain and i'm very good at changing gears really quickly and i'm sorry about that but um is there a way to where we can accept modern knitted oh god i can't even say that word the modern aspects of our world while in the same vein getting rid of the more toxic aspects of it you know like what immediately springs to mind and there's many toxic aspects of uh our modern world um but like social media our our tiktoks our instagrams our facebooks our youtubes you know all these um different boxes that we put these little blinders that we put over our eyes and just ignore the world um and just focus on that are there good aspects to our modern world like i i feel like i'm looking at one right now you know because without this advancement of computer and internet we would never even know who you are we wouldn't be able to have this conversation so instead of kind of pushing all of um the modern world to the side and saying this is all terrible are there ways to where we can kind of cut the toxicity out of it and utilize the the good aspects of it because i i know damn well that if my ancestors had access to a bic or a zippo they would use that instead of a flint and steel because it's easier it's more convenient even though there are negative aspects to the creation of those items totally totally i mean i i wasn't going in a in a sort of an amish uh, direction uh, that that uh, i i i mean i 
believe I me, I, I dream of a day where I can just disappear into a log cabin in the woods and just fucking ignore <laughs> everybody because let's face it, I'm done. Yeah, I, I, I have that dream too. Uh, perhaps that's perhaps it's very modern to have that dream. Uh, like um, uh, my um, my wife uh, was born in um, in a village in uh, Central African Republic uh, where grew up in, she grew up in France, uh, but we've been back there once, and that is really the countryside. It's a kind of place where people still hunt with spears um, and and stuff like that, and. Um, so they they live very very relational existences, and uh, we find it's it's difficult. It, it, you, for instance, you can might be as anti-capitalist as you want. I'm pretty anti-capitalist, but when you come when you come to a place where people, for instance, at a, uh, have a relational economy, so they perceive economy, uh, they perceive wealth as something that's supposed to diffuse. Uh, so if you have perceived great wealth you are required to of course diffuse it it's, it's logic that, that that is difficult <laughs> and it's not it's not like it's not scion uh, to to be in a place like that and, and i don't think that that i think we should be a little we should be careful with hoping for uh sort of utopia um i also think yes. that, uh, i also think that uh, modernities uh like has given us a lot of very very nice thing I and mean, things. I mean, we would like to have stuff like COVID vaccines and 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 as you say, you know, the communication that we're using right now. And, um, I'm sitting in in uh, Copenhagen, and you guys are sitting in Michigan. And we're sitting around grandfather fire. It's awesome, <laughs> uh, but um, um, yeah. So so I'm I'm not sure that I have a straight up answer to how do we deal with the toxicity in, in, in this greater scheme of things? What I'm looking at mainly, what I'm, perhaps I'm a little bit wearing, do you say blinders in English? Uh, I'm looking at the way that our perception of the world has been ruptured, that we are, uh, we're perceiving ourselves as enclosed inside this, very touchy subjectivity and then there's a there's a hard and and, and dead reality out there and there's a there's kind of a, a chasm between these two things and that is a huge problem uh but that doesn't mean that animals for instance peoples or groups aren't cruel they regularly are very cruel they even destroy their environments sometimes uh and and uh, there are Humanity is just, you know, inherently complex and contradictory and amazing. And uh, so, so, uh, um, but I, I would really like to have a way. One, one suggestion that I made myself, there was just like almost an afterthought uh, because I was, uh, I made a little review of Tyson Junkerporter's book there, was that I, I recommended that uh, the people who, um, after signing the internet, the big tech companies, those those guys, they should go down and meet Tyson Junkerporter in Australia and sit around the fire with him and some of those insane level animist elders that he knows, which is some dude whose name nobody knows, was just walking around with his jeans and his t-shirt somewhere in the in the uh, 
bush in Australia and knows the pattern of creation. Now, if these people, if the people who create the, the technology that we are using right now, if they listen to those people when they create those structures instead of just creating those idiotic, uh, you know, attention extraction capitalism algorithms that just messes all of us up. It messes up, you know, it makes people more bigoted on the right wing. It makes left wingers paranoid and weird. And, you know, I feel it myself. It, it, <laughs> it messes up all of us, you know, uh, because the, the there are these weird beings, these algorithms that just encloses us in these mirror cabinets that they think that we want to be in, but we don't, or maybe we do, but we don't, we shouldn't. <laughs> No, you actually, something that you just said, you referred to them as bees, and I'm really happy you did. Because the way these algorithms literally grow in complexity and in uh, their design from a simple algorithm into something that builds itself is very much like an organism. And I think that relating to these algorithms in our computers, as well as the fire that actually makes these computers work the earth that these uh channels of fire go through you know we call them wires we call them circuit boards um when we stop relating to them as dead things and start relating to them as beings that's a hell of a mind shift because what are you feeding the algorithm like whether it's the content you produce or what you watch how you consume media, because uh, I think that uh, the sackcloth and ashes thing is kind of a, a outdated, outmoded model and kind of needs to go by the wayside. And it's on the one hand, it's that's dystopian. And then the, I'm going to sequester myself in a cabin in the woods is almost individualistic utopianism. It's not going to happen. Where the hell are you going to put the cabin? Do you have the proper skills to make the cabin? Is the land going to be happy with you building this cabin? Um, you know, how do you get a, how, how do you build relationships when you, all you're chasing is an ideal instead of a lived relationship? And I think that relating to even the algorithms as beings unto themselves, as spirits, encoded in this mesh of reality like people say oh well you know in real life when they're referring to online life i'm like no dude there's no separation here i'm still sarenth odinson when i log off my computer i don't cease to be sarenth just because i'm not in front of a machine i i carry this reality with me this uh relationship to people on the internet and with the internet and with people through this device, I mean, especially because I've been in, I've been in lockdown earlier in this year or last year, I was in a trailer for six months. That was my way of relating to other people, especially. So treating this as separate from reality is actually a misnomer because it's, we're all enmeshed in this together in different relationship formats. What are you feeding the algorithm? Are you feeding it? Um, actually, you mentioned something about the Fenris Wolf earlier, and I, I actually want to counter that narrative of the Fenris Ulfer because I think Othan let that prophecy get away from himself and overreacted in a very fundamental way. Well, it's getting too big for us to control. Well, don't control the Fenris Wolf then. Like, if, if, if you're convinced this thing's going to eat you, 
try to find another way. I think the this is where the cycle of Ragnarok itself is really fun to play with as a concept, mm-hmm. because as a heathen, you know, people are like, well, how can you worship the Fenris wolf when he's literally going to eat your father? Well, because I realized that him being the ravenous wolf isn't all that he is and isn't all that he was and isn't all that he has to be either. We don't have to lock ourselves into Ragnarok. I think, yeah, I think what you said says there makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the, uh, the relating that goes on between forces of uh, order and human social space and for what is traditionally called forces of chaos and Nordic religion, they, they, the, the relation between the Aesir Vanir and the Jotnar, uh, and where the Fenris or the Fenrir also belongs, these relates, relations are very diverse. They have babies with each other. They uh, play games with each other. They make uh, deals with each other. They trade with each other. They. Uh, they live with each other. They identify with each other. They descend from each other. They do all kinds of things, and they also deceive each other. They also fight each other. They all sometimes in organized sort of dual light fighting. Sometimes in more cosmic violence, as in the Ragnarok. And I think that all these multiple kinds of relation, relations and contracts between uh, gods and, and uh, gods and giants, um, what you see in the Ragnarok and what is really imaged in the, uh, the breaking of uh, the breaking of the bond is all those multiple bonds sort of breaking down. So uh, another, uh, another myth that also recounts uh, Ragnarok is the, uh, it's called the Grotasongar. Which is the uh, story of the Jotnar, uh, Jotun women, Fenya and Menya, who are driving the magic millstone that produces the wealth of King Frodi's kingdom, uh, and then he presses them too hard, and then they 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 turn against him and and uh, and invokes um, cataclysm and and war and breakdown on his kingdom. Now that and and they are they are servants of Frodi. Um, somehow. So there's a social bond between them. The slaves. Slaves mean something slightly different in uh, in uh, antique uh, uh, prehistoric mm-hmm. cultures. Uh, let's use the word servant. It's more precise. There's a, there's, a, there's a social contract between them. When the social contract is ruptured, then they collapse. And in a sense, I think that the Ragnarok, the breaking of the bond... Uh, it represents a situation where the Jotnar and the Aesir start, in a sense, behaving towards each other like Christian angels and demons. They stop making babies with each other. They stop having contracts with each other. And all of a sudden, Loki, who has been identified as one of the Aesir, he can't be that anymore. So he becomes the enemy, uh, almost in a Christian sense. So this, and, and that is... Um, the Ragnarok, I think, is a millenarian vision, uh, and mil- millenarism is uh, something. You know what millenarism is? I do, but I'd like you to explain it for our listeners. Millenarisms are apocalyptic notions of reality that tend to emerge in. Actually, they tend to emerge in colonized situations where people's traditional culture is threatened. Now, 
uh, Scandinavia wasn't colonized in the uh, Viking Age, but what happened in the Viking Age was that Scandinavia uh, experienced globalization, urbanization, Christianization, and state formation. Now, that is a very hardcore cocktail of social changes that happened. And I think that the, uh, the bonus bar, the Ragnarok prophecy, is a, uh, is a millenarian reaction to that very hardcore uh, packet of uh, package of social changes, including Christianization, the threat to traditional knowledge. So, uh, so, so what we see in the Ragnarok is is the rupture of traditional relation uh, and uh, and the ensuing uh, the ensuing collapse. So, <clears throat> yeah. something I want to I want to pick up on that you talked about a little bit ago was the the idea of Finfara, where you'd go to the Finns and learn their knowledge, and you'd come away. Uh, a little odd from the cultural perspective, but you were respected because the Finns had power and you were bringing that back into the community. Othin is basically like the archetypal god for this in the, in the Norse myths. But you also have Freya, who he goes to learn this from, and she's from a different tribe. The Aesir and the Vanir definitely relate in this cosmologically big way. And we can also relate to this in a cosmologically much more small way where I don't have knowledge of how to live effectively on this land. I need to go talk to the Anishinaabe or the Potawatomi or the people who lived here for time out of mind. I need to have humility and go talk to my neighbor. And that animistic model of relating to people through not just, um, the physical relationships we have, but the knowledge relationships we have where I have this knowledge over here, but I have some gaps and I know that I do. So I need to have humility and go talk to my neighbor and say, Hey, so I don't know how to live effectively on this land. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think, yeah. And I think, think really like uh, you mentioned as uh, braiding sweet grass. I think it's a really good, place that well, I mean you can you can read that book wherever in the world you live and think it's awesome uh, but um, but uh, like uh, yeah I think so too <laughs> and and I think that also the the Odinic, uh, wisdom certainly has the idea of for instance of traveling uh, when you read uh, the Hovamal you, you find this idea that that uh, travel is what gives you wisdom uh, the word uh, for stupid in the Havamah is Heimskir. Uh, that is actually uh, cognate with a, with a, the English word home, Heim. So uh, being uh, like uh, being enclosed in in and, and uh, sitting uh, on your ass at home, learning nothing. Yeah, you, you're so dumb because you never left your house. <laughs> yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're talking about animistic models. I mean, if you're just sitting on your ass in your house, you can't go outside and talk to Raven and understand what Raven has to say to you hmm. on on a cosmological or a personal model of just observing what the hell Raven does. Because if the only way that you're relating to Raven is through this idealized, hyper-masculinized way of relating to Raven or, you know, my personal love of wolves if the only way that i'm related to wolves is through a flawed study where there's alphas and betas and omegas and this hyper masculine thing that the um originator of that paper went um it's all bullshit because they were in captivity this hame stupidity is even present in 
modern science because, oh, well, we don't observe this relationship in actual wolf populations. We only observe it when they're in captivity. Well, then that means that our, our model of knowledge is flawed and we need to actually go to where the wolf is and learn from, from them in their environment, not our idealized locked off home environment that we've built for them and wonder why they have all these maladaptive relationships. Mm. Totally. And, and I think like uh, the idea of other as, as, as a main kind of concept, there's an American uh, phenomenologist called Thomas Sordas, uh, who has this idea that alterity, the sort of the, the, um, the traction towards alterity is the fundamental motor in human religiosity. Uh, and uh, well, now you talked about science as a little different thing, but but I think the the um, uh, the idea that you you actually learn from other in a sense, and like when when people like us are also attracted, uh, for instance, to uh, pre-Christian uh, European uh, paganisms, uh, that is also other in a sense for us. We're contemporary people. We, you know, we we uh, we didn't grow up with uh, with uh, Odin and and uh, Frey and, and and these things. Uh, they are. And by the way, uh, me sitting here with my uh, super Viking sounding name in in Scandinavia, I'm not closer to that than you guys because it's so far away. You know, it's a thousand years ago. How how long a time? How long time was it ago that? That, that your republic was funded was that was that two hundred years ago? Uh, it's a thousand years ago. It's a freakish long time. Yeah, I, some ways uh, here in North America, as far as our culture, the 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 predominant Wait, culture we, here. The, we the, have the, a the, culture here. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> but the joke is that that that. Uh, uh, you know, 200 years is a long time for us. And in, in when I encounter Europeans or, or indigenous people, they're just like, 200 years, it's nothing. You're, you're just, you're barely getting started. I always think that's rather amusing because it's so, our, our, uh, it's such a skewing of, of misunderstanding because um, it's hard for us to get away from the the modern mindset because really that's all we have to a large degree at least here in as part of the the white culture in the united states that's that's really all i've got is the modern culture so it's very hard to relate to some people on how to shift that into an older and longer view a more relationship oriented view if that makes sense but uh, but North American modernity also has another thing to it, which is that uh, if you compare, for instance, with uh, with uh, French modernity, uh, then uh, it is uh, North American modernity is less uh, hardcore atheist. That also means that you have a lot of fucked up religiosities over there, but you you also have uh, you also have uh, like a, a fundamental. Uh, kind of uh, openness to to uh, and kind of, what do you call it 
per, you're, you're permissive uh, in relation to um, to animist realities. I think also um, in, in a different way. Like for instance, my my, my French in-law family, man, you know, it, they they're they it is hardcore uh, atheism, really really hardcore, almost like fundamentalist atheism, uh, and and uh, so so I think I'm. I'm, you know, now the troll is gone. I'm, I'm optimistic about American culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you have something, Sarah? Oh, just that uh, it's it's interesting how in the in the absence of a permissive atmosphere, how people glom onto perspectives that reify and unify their vision of what reality is or ought to be. Um. You know, we see it. We see it. Uh, Room is very accurate in pointing out our, our religiosity breeds some crazy shit, but it also allows for cross curves to develop that don't, in a locked off mindset, where the only thing that is real is scientific materialism, and that the only thing that can be real is what is verified through science, and then science becomes almost this—it's a thought stopper. Because because science, it's the same way that, that some folks relate to because God said so, because science said so. Well, who the fuck is science? It's a collection of people sharing knowledge or not sharing knowledge because I can't access most of that shit because it's behind a paywall. Um, <laughs> because science said so. And what they're really talking about is, well, I saw this article on the television that told me this study said when if you actually dig down and read what it said, it didn't say shit about it. It's a hyper-sensationalized narrative that's being put out by a conglomerate that wants to make a buck. Because the science doesn't say shit. <laughs> it's just, it, it's become so abstracted from its relationship to what's actually in the material even, that science itself has become capital S abstracted from a lived experienced relationship that is dangerous on a fundamental level because when you're talking about animism i'm gonna backtrack to braiding sweetgrass she talks very clearly about her experiences studying how sweetgrass is formed and functions in relationship with human beings. If you don't have that relationship where the harvest process goes on, the sweet grass dies. It needs us as human beings to harvest in order to propagate in order to live. You can't take humanity out of the equation and then have a living biome in a lot of these plant plant lives. If you take us out, plants die entire ecosystems get upended because we're no longer there providing buffers or providing uh, casting or whatever method of, of control or, or propagation they they've co-developed with us. So it's, it's, it's this really weird temptation to be like, well, if we just took humanity out of the picture, everything be okay. This is, you know, again, eco-fascism is, is ugly in this regard because it discounts our, place in things as a positive as think, a lived relationship i'm sorry go ahead i think what we need to do is um reintroduce humanity to our relationship to nature i want to 
and I, I don't even know if it's possible to go back and look at what histories we have available to us, but at what point did the world start suffering at the hands of humans and how does that line up with the loss of spirituality and the loss of certain cultures and the loss of certain traditions? How well do those two things parallel? You know, because as we walked away, as we as in people, as cultures, as individuals, as families, communities, whatever you want to call it, when we walked away from nature and from cultivating land and having relationship with the trees in our backyard or with the land underneath our feet, did the earth start dying that day? Or did it take time to start changing? Because Sarenth is right. And uh, sweetgrass isn't the only plant that requires that sort of cultivation. You know, there's a lot of plants in the world that need our help, our assistance. You know, the greenhouse I work for, um, the owners are very Catholic. And uh, the owner asked me, what well, walked up to me one day and she goes, for the life of me, I can't figure out why your seedlings look better than my seedlings. And I don't really want to lose my job by saying, well, I'm, I'm a heathen and I'm a spiritualist and I talk to the plants and I tell them, you know, you're doing a great job. I'm so proud of you. And, you know, I, I pray to Freyr and Yorth and Pachamama every day and say, help us develop a beautiful harvest for people that will buy our vegetables, you know, come uh, April, May and June. You know, I tell her, I just talk to them. You know, I tell them that they're pretty and I I hope you do well. And if not, I will help you where I can. And she just kind of laughed and said, oh, stop. And then walked away from me. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. That's why they look amazing. Um, But I'm really curious if there is a correlation between that. You know, when we walked away from our spirituality, when we walked away from that connection, with Pachamama, with yours, with Mother Earth, Gaia, whatever you call her, is there a correlation to the change in her? I think, um, well, I think that humanity, uh, to one level, I think we might just have a huge destructive potential in us. At least some people believe, and this is not, I don't think this is a complete consensus, but some people believe that what is called the um, the uh, ice age fauna, very big mammals, the the ones that we see in the ice ice age movies, right, the mastodons and mammoths and all that stuff, that they disappeared on every single continent at exactly the same time as you see there start to be little bits of ashes and arrowheads. <laughs> so <laughs> these people believe that basically we're a little bit of a natural catastrophe. Um, however, humans have also uh, then learned to deal with some of that stuff. If you take away the uh, the big mammals, you take away, away what's called keystone species, uh, species that are keeping an ecosystem uh, flourishing. And so, so uh, humans, uh, one thing that humans have been doing is, uh, for instance, burning uh, areas and so on. Uh, Aboriginal Australians have been doing that. And, and some believe that this is a way of, of actually imitating the impact of these keystone species on the landscape. So, so if, if all this is correct, it seems that humans 
are um, eat all the Keystone species. Then they think, oh shit, that wasn't all that good. And then they start learning to behave as uh, as uh, what uh, Tyson Junger Porter, the Aboriginal uh, Australian author that I mentioned before, what he calls uh, custodians, uh, custod- uh, custodian species. That they th- these Aboriginal Australians think of us as a custodian species. Our task here is to take a care of shit so it doesn't all break down. That is a task we've failed in doing, uh, and in and and this is one perspective. But then, of course, what we also see is stuff like the agrarian revolution. A lot of nature disappears. Industrialization. A lot of nature disappears. the The last fifty years, when the human population has just skyrocketed. Has basically just today basically the mass of human beings on the planet is part of a uh, environmental cataclysm. There are people who say we shouldn't eat the uh, bio biologically produced or eco produced uh, food for the sole reason that uh, it takes a little bit of a little bit more uh, agricultural space. And if all humans in the Western world ate eco ate ecology produced uh, food. Then, uh, then we, there wouldn't be any nature left, because because we are so many today uh, that that uh, so. Uh, but part of, of at least the last very very steep tip in destruction is certainly connected, I think, with modernity and the idea that uh, that we are not in a um, in a reciprocal relationship with with uh, the world around us um i think the the idea of custodianship is somehow inherent to the idea of uh, reciprocal relationship and the, the 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 possibility of the absolute destruction that we are seeing today is somehow inherent to the idea of the dead exterior world the world as a package house of dead resources that we just need to either deplete or perhaps take a little bit care of so they deplete a little bit slower you know or, uh, yeah I've actually held a, a long belief that we as humans were meant to be stewards <laughs> of the earth so and custodian um, makes sense and fits kind of in the same belief as my um, my uh, worldview, I guess. Um, you know, there there are patterns in the world everywhere. Wherever you look, there are patterns in the plant world. There are patterns in the animal world, and there are patterns that kind of correlate and overlap one another. And um, like you said, we do have kind of a destructive nature to ourselves as humans, but so does nature itself. You know. And yes, we have perpetuated many of those cycles and made them far more dangerous than what they need to be with climate change and everything like that, making hurricanes and tornadoes and thunderstorms more wild and more dangerous. You know, that is a direct um, causation that has been created because of our disconnection to the natural world and our connection to the modern world. And how we just consume everything like hungry ghosts. Um, But I think in a way to get back to 
being human, I guess, you know, we need to embrace the world around us. We need to open our eyes. We need to open our ears and really listen to what's around us and kind of get back in touch with the different peoples around us. You know, they're uh, the Aboriginal uh, cultures in Australia were saying to the Australian government, you know, you need to do these practices. Otherwise we're going to have a devastating event happen. They were saying this for years before the wildfires happened and they didn't listen. And all of a sudden there were wildfires raging across Australia. You know, that was a, an old held knowledge and belief from people that they considered to be savage. You know, you're not of the industrial age, so you must be a moron. And we saw the direct cause of ignoring that knowledge, you know, so it, it kind of brings us full circuit circle back to what we were talking about before at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, getting to know other people, getting to know their, their thoughts and their minds and, and what they believe and what they practice and just kind of having a general understanding of others around you, you know, and removing that block and removing your, initial thought processes on certain things and having the ability to actually listen and hear what somebody is saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you're also touching an uh, important um, bit there with the consumption, like uh, what we eat, we are so alienated from it. We're so alienated from it. Like, uh, and, and I will, I, when I've been studying uh, Nordic, folklore, uh, particularly for from looking at it from an anthropologically animist perspective, I'm always coming across these, these uh, examples where people are relating to uh, the beings that feed us in, in very intense and very respectful ways. Um, one example is the rye. Uh, people in southern Scandinavia, at least, used to worship the rye as a god, Almost like the Maya in Guatemala, they worship the maize as a god. It is the being that gives you life. You worship it. It gives you your life comes from that being. Uh, so, and people have very intense rituals about around this being. Right? There used to be, I mean, probably not more than a couple of generations ago, people used to um, apologize to a pig before killing it. Uh, before slaughtering a pig, they would speak to it and say, we don't do this because of uh, enmity or hate. We do it because we're hungry. This is a textbook example of animist behavior that you find in, in uh, you know, it, you know, they will be speaking to a soul of a seal that they, they just kill and say, hey, we're sorry about this, <laughs> uh, but our children are hungry. And, uh, just want to let you know that in our uh, homestead, we are good and decent people and we would like to invite you to come back and feed us another time. Now, it is so sh it's so short time ago, it's, it's so recently <clears throat> that that normal Eurocentric, you know, peasant, peasantry had exactly that kind of uh, uh, that kind of animism. And um, for instance, when like in, in contact that I've had, had with a lot of people who are involved in heathenry, for instance, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it had seemed to me that the focus was a little bit too strongly on things that was a little bit too far away when 
when these kind of things are so fairly close to us somehow, and where uh, where that sort of relating to to um, the actual beings that feed us, uh, and is it somewhere at the root of the whole problem? Like where I'm from is Denmark. It's a small country. There's six million people, so we produce pig meat in Denmark. We produce thirty million. Uh, pigs for slaughter per year, 30 million for 6 million humans. It's absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane that that uh, when you think, when you look at it in the in the context of having a bit of an animus relation with that being and that violence, that violence, uh, I don't have a strong... Uh, idea that perhaps everybody should be vegans or something like that. Perhaps we should, or some people think that, and that's cool. But as, but if we just look at the animist respect for that animal that's being killed, and 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 actually acknowledging that violence, if we acknowledge the violence, perhaps we wouldn't kill thirty million per year. You know, perhaps we would eat it in a little bit of a different way. You know. Maybe we would start producing them ourselves a little bit more. I don't. I. I. I don't know exactly what would happen. No, I'm just. I, I, I think I you're onto something there because. Um, so in the last few years, I've noticed that ancestor worship and veneration has gotten a lot more popular, and in the, <clears throat> the realm of the conventional i noticed that that was reflected i didn't think that people realized that what was going on but what i see that reflected is an increasing interest in genealogy and genealogy websites when you're speaking right now it seems to me that you are absolutely correct that connecting to those very basic food sources and that relationship is is really important perhaps on some intuitive level we already know this because the last few years the restaurant industry has gone so much more towards seasonal and locally sourced products so perhaps intuitively we as as cultures already understand that we need to return to this it's just that we need to map out how to do that we need to remember how to do that and i think having that level of uh, understanding of where your food comes from also offers you the idea of, well, I can't constantly fish in this river. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to feed my family. Mm-hmm. I can't constantly hunt this forest every day and kill every deer that I come across. Otherwise I can't feed my family. You know, uh, my dad and I were talking about this a couple of years ago um, about how much we hate grocery stores um, just because of how much stuff is in there. And uh, he said something kind of flippantly. And he said, well, you know, the first grocery store didn't show up in America until like the 50s or something like that. And it was like, really? And he's like, yeah, before that, everybody, you know, grew their own stuff or bought it from their neighbor who had a couple of pigs or cows or whatever. And I was just so kind of blown away by that. And this was kind of in the midst of the beginning of my spiritual path. And I uh, bought a quarter of a cow from a lady in the town next to me um, and went in on a half a cow with a friend of mine. I actually met the cow and I said, thank you to the cow that I was about to eat and have in my freezer and having that sort of relationship with that cow 
that was the best meat I've ever had. But recently I've been having to buy from the grocery store just because of the chaos of 2020 and the, there's something off about the meat. There's something not right about it. Like often I have been kind of foregoing eating chicken and beef and stuff like that because it doesn't taste right to me. Having known that connection to the animal, having that respect for them and being able to harvest and have that. So I, I really do think that you're on to something there, um, redeveloping that relationship with our food, not and not even just animals. You know, you have to have that with plants too. I work in a greenhouse, so I kind of already have that. I have kind of a an advanced step towards it. And then I also volunteer on a farm where we do um, horticulture and sustainable farming and everything. So I understand how that all works, but not everybody understands that the tomatoes that you buy from the store came from a plant that was grown in a greenhouse from a seed and how long that plant had to be there before it produced a tomato this size, you know? So if you understand where your food comes from, then maybe it'll help us understand a little bit better to not overfish or deforest our lands for big farms, because you can feed a family on an acre. Mm. You you can feed five people on one acre of land. You won't have a yard, but you'll have a garden and that's way more yeah, valuable. Who needs a yard anyway, honestly. Yeah, it's uh, just for the rich. Right. Um, I, we've kept you for quite a while. I want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about your work with the Raven Totem before we, we run out of time yes. here. Tell everybody a little bit about what you're doing there and what that process is. Well, it actually uh, it connects perhaps to the, some of those ideas of ancestry. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about it and, and about what ancestry is and and also the way it's sometimes misunderstood and, and cast into something that is maybe not. Um, but uh, and and uh, one basic thing, very basic and important thing about ancestry, I think, is that we come from others. <laughs> uh, death is other, and death is also very uh, giving and, and it's it's fertile. So when you look at the, the Afro-descendant, Afro-Caribbean religions that are studied, you find that the dead are other in many ways, often they're ethnic others. So uh, black people in Brazil, they tend to worship Native American dead. Uh, white people who also have Af- Afro-descendant religions and have had it for quite a long time in Brazil, they tend to worship um, Afro-descendant dead. <laughs> and, and so there's an idea that the the dead is are somehow other. Uh, and uh, one way that they can be other is uh, that, that ancestors can also be animals or giants or monsters or something like that. Now, and if, if you look at the Nordic, um, the, the Nordic mythology, you see, you see all these things. You see ancestors as, as ethnic others. The kings of Norway made sure to emphasize that their ancestors were certainly Sami, um, and there, and the, uh, and there's also the ideas of, of, of ancestors and trolls and so on, and the idea that we descend from an animal or a a marriage between an animal and, and a human, and you find this in many different cultures around the the planet. Um, perhaps you know the um, uh, amazing Irish-produced uh, 
animated movie called The Song of the Sea that tells about a marriage between a seal and a, and a human. Now, that story of the marriage between the seal and the human is very, very uh, widespread in Northern Europe. You find it in many places like little families saying, yeah, we descend from a seal and uh, stuff like that. In Northern Scandinavia, you've had... Um, bear totemism, we descend from bears or we are related from bears. They've had that even into the 20th century and in ways that you wouldn't believe, like dancing around in bear masks and uh, and, and uh, you don't know what. So anyway, well, that was a little bit of a long prelude to the raven. <laughs> to the raven. But, um, but raven is an important totemic ancestor and an important mythic being in a lot of different cultures, sort of in the circumpolar area of, of the Northern Hemisphere. So you find it uh, particularly among Inuits and uh, different groups of Siberians and uh, the Native Americans that are living up, uh, along the Pacific Rim in uh, from Alaska down towards uh, Washington State. Now, and these people particularly... They have these raven totemism, raven clans. Totemism is, uh, uh, the word totem actually comes from Anishinaabeg, uh, and it means a clan, a group that is that is defined by relating between humans and, uh, and animals. Right? So, um, so a raven clan is the idea that there are humans who are part of a community that also includes raven. Uh, and the idea is that these humans, they're somehow a little bit raven inside somehow. But raven is also a little bit human inside because these humans descend from raven. He's, a, he's an ancestor to these humans. So they, sh- they show this in this incredibly beautiful and powerful and dense way. Uh, there's a, a group of people, uh, and I'm trying to pronounce this wide, but right, they call the Kwakwaki uh, Walker, and uh, and in old days they were called Kwaki Utl. Uh, but they have a they dance a raven um, with a raven mask, and then it opens, and there's a human inside the raven mask. Now that is almost a performance of the mystery of animism that that there is there is a human subjectivity in the world, personhood is permeating the world. So the raven as an ancestor is being external, or the raven is inside the raven clan members being externalized in the raven mask, which then opens and has a human inside. This kind of uh, dense entanglement of human and raven. Now, what I started to notice was that that when you look at um, uh, late Iron Age North European archaeology, you see... Uh, human masks inside raven bodies, uh, like almost seemingly exactly the same idea that that there's a ra- little raven figure, a kind of brooch, uh, and then there's um, then there's a human face inside or a mask. Now this is makes quite a lot of sense in in view of the Nordic mythology because the uh, the ravens of the god Odin is called Hugin and Munin. These words means mind and memory. Right, so it's human mental capacities. It seems that the inner nature of these ravens is human, right? Now, Odin is ancestor deity to a lot of different groups and dynasties in Northern Europe. He is uh, associated with shamanism. He has uh, 
trickster aspects. What was the last thing? Uh, anyway, there were four. There were four, four typical Raven aspects that he also has, and he's called the Raven God. So the the Nordic Raven God is very, I think, similar to these different Raven uh, motifs that that you find, particularly on the Northwest Pacific coast in America. Um, so. So my basic thesis from kind of a scholarly perspective is to say, well, there seems that the Nordic raven motif is part of this raven totemism or this raven motif that is found among many peoples. And that means that when we look at raven in the Nordic context, then it doesn't only mean the ravens are going to pick out your eyes and eat your riding horses and we're going to kill you. <laughs> right? <laughs> then raven is actually <laughs> a symbol that is also a little bit deeper than that. It is a trickster that, uh, that symbolizes actually human connectedness with the world. Right? So what I did was I thought, okay... Um, uh, I want to basically reintroduce the raven flag because uh, there's a number of chronicles and sagas that talk about um, wars where uh, people had a raven uh, flag, a raven banner, a raven standard, the Havnsmarki. And, and, um, uh, and I say we can renew this into our age as a symbol of that thing, human connectedness with the world. So, uh, so, and I I'm, have introduced this now and have been, uh, I collaborated with some designers where we sort of looked at different um, uh, archaeological finds and sort of merged a, a suggestion for a contemporary raven flag to basically uh, suggest this and uh, to suggest it to uh, kind-hearted, good people who uh, who uh, uh, don't belong to bad political positions to say uh, okay we can uh, we, we can take this important north european eurodescended symbol and we can use it as a symbol of that perhaps we also in a sense are children of raven we are in a sense uh, and and the boys of raven is not more are we going to kill you? Perhaps it is connection with 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 uh, with the world. It's the, it is the the kinship between humanity and uh, and the world, which is signaled in these raven images, where the human is like literally kind of entangled in the raven. And then, of course, we designed the raven flag in that way, so with with, with the with the human mask inside the raven. So if you if you know, I don't know if if you know this well enough to to have seen images of how people try to recreate the raven flag, um, but typical it will be a, repro uh, a reproduction of the raven image at the so-called York Raven Penny, where there's a little image of this this bird, and I think there's also a, a good, good and realistic idea of that it could actually be a raven mark. Um, but uh, then we have uh, uh, taken uh, and some of these different designs and merged them also with some of these fibulae and some of these different finds to, to make a contemporary raven flag. Um, yeah, so that's 
phasing of the project. And what we're then hoping is also that that if if we can manifest this in a way where good people start using it, then it we had a chance of uh, safeguarding this, I think, really important part of our cultural heritage from being associated with biker hooligans and I don't know, whatever they call most of Greenland types. Um, and, um, and yeah, so that's basically the project. I like that a lot. Now, is there um, a statement of like a unifying thought of what is behind the Raven flag for the people that want to use it or how, how is that process looking? Yeah, I, I, I've written I've written stuff about that on my on my homepage. Uh, I actually started this as as an actual research process into the the process through which the Raven uh, relation was rejected in Northern Europe because it started be, out being very tight that there's this very close relation between Raven and, and humans, but then uh, Christianity at some point was implemented and 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 Raven got very intensely demonized. Uh, in Denmark, um, uh, they call Raven the Apostle of Satan. Yeah, you see that a lot in fiction, even with Lord of the Rings or Robert Jordan's series, where the Ravens are always the eyes of the whatever force of evil, yeah. that uh, sort of thing. Yeah, and and I, I see that as part of a, uh, uh, an ongoing rejection process, uh, where um, where then, of course, what I'm suggesting is turning around and saying we can. Uh, but but uh, on my homepage, uh, which is you know look for Nordic animism, uh, I, I explained this in detail. And the research project, um, I, I wrote a popularized article where I explain kind of all these details about uh, not all but many of these archaeological finds and how they relate and how they express animism in in uh, totemic um, totemism in different ways. Um, that, that's very cool. I actually recently had a moment with my aforementioned bosses uh, about how clever and useful ravens are. Um, well, crows for us, because ravens are a little further north, but uh, I heard them outside and I just mentioned, oh, the crows must have followed me here because I, I live very close to the greenhouse. There's literally a small forest that um, is in between us. I could walk in a straight line to their back door if I wanted to. Um, and I heard them and she goes, oh, well, they're terrible birds. And I was like, no, actually, they're not. They're very clever and very smart. And they're actually uh, uh, oh, not scavenger birds. What are they? Uh, oh, my God, my brain. The the birds that eat the the roadkill um, in, in the dead, huh? Carrion eaters. Yeah, carrion birds. Um, and so they're they're actually protected here in the states. You can't uh, kill a bird like that, um, because they they clean up the dead basically. And I explained this to her, and she was like, "Oh, well, it must be the other blackbirds that eat corn." And I'm like, "Well, now they probably eat corn too, but probably not the way you're thinking." <laughs> Um, but just changing that mindset with people uh, is kind of a struggle because they've always been seen as like an omen of death too. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. Yeah. They, they, 
so uh, it's it's a quite intense story. I mean, there, there's the they, they used to also or people used to say here in Scandinavia that they they held thing. Do you know the word thing? Like uh, a parliamentary election or, or, or assembly. So if you see a lot of ravens or crows in a field, then it's called a raven thing or crow thing. This is a very animist way of thinking. You find the same thing in, in the Amazon that, that, that people will say, oh, okay, so the peccaries, the howler monkeys, they have villages. They go home and then they have villages and they live together and like other people and they have shamans and initiation the, uh, uh, rituals and do all kinds of things that people do. Uh, and so... So they've been very associated with this thing. But then at some point, the um, the totemic charge got really bad. And people started thinking that that, that it was there were probably, probably human beings who had been cursed to live in, in the shape of ravens. And that was not a, a, a blessing, or blessing or a kind of community anymore, but a curse. Um, and uh, so there's this, this, long, um, this long story about, about this. And I dug up uh, I was lucky to find this amazing ballad, which is a medieval ballad called Raven Leads Runes. And it's only a fragment of a ballad, uh, but it tells about uh, a woman who is longing for her knight, which is on a ship. Uh, and then she calls down the ravens and she carves, I think she carves runes or gives runes to the raven or carves runes in its foot or something like that. She's, the ravens go, raven uh, go out and changes the wind, so the wind brings back the night to her. Now, the I think this particular story is incredibly beautiful because it it tells the raven has the mediator role. It is a trickster role. The invocation, the runes, is being sent to bring perhaps the god back to the human being, right? Uh, and um, and that particular thing, the the reforging of the marriage, the animist marriage, uh, that is something that you find in, in, in um, as a theme in folklore. You find the idea that a human has married, for instance, a seal or something, but then the marriage broke down. In, in an important Danish ballad, the marriage broke down because the the human uh, was a, a woman. Uh, she bent down to to the priest in church, and then that ruptured the connection with the the sea man, the the seal uh, spirit that she was married to and had children with. And then the world collapses in this sort of Ragnarok vision, and she grows mad. He's she goes mad and so on. So the human leaves the connection, and then the world collapses. Now, if you go back to the far north of Scandinavia or further north where they had this very long-standing tradition of this bare totemism, um, you find the same uh, story. You find human marrying a bear. It's also a human woman marrying a bear man. But then she ha- does some sort of infraction towards this other than human uh, that breaks the marriage. But then the story of the fairy tale or the myth is really about how she recreates the connection so then she goes to another, you know, another land or go, go to some dream time and she finds that bear prince again and recreates the relation. And I see this raven sending the runes to bring back that 
Prince. I know it sounds a little bit like My Little Pony or something like with princes and the whatnot. <laughs> this is a medieval ballad, guys. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, but uh, she sends Raven with runes to bring back the prince. I see that as as the reforging of the the animist connection, the animist marriage kinship between human and uh, world. That, that yeah, makes a wonderful. lot of sense. I like mm-hmm. that a lot. I like that a lot. And yeah, you just, uh, let me see, nordicanimism.com, and then you've got a picture of a flag and explanate link to the YouTube explanation video. So hope people go and watch that because that's it's really interesting information. Yeah, and you guys definitely check out all of his socials, his YouTube, uh, his uh, actual webpage and everything. He has a wealth of knowledge on the Nordic peoples and the, the path, not just because he has a doctorate, but because that's basically his life. That's where he grew up, you know. So if you're looking for another source of information, a valid source that is not linked to any sorts of jackassery out in the world that we seem to... Uh, find so often in heathenry please check him out you know he he's a wonderful person so thanks a lot <laughs> i really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all this incredible knowledge and this wealth of Absolutely. of just wisdom i really yeah. appreciate that and thank you so much for taking time out of your your day to do that yeah, and thank you for talking to us for 2 hours. It's what 11 o'clock now p.m. Oh, yeah. for you. <clears throat> Yes, it's gotten a little bit late, but, but no, th- no, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's super awesome to, uh, I'm honored to be invited and uh, join you on, uh, on the grandfa- Grandfather Fire. Um, I think it's an awesome, an awesome uh, project you're running here. So thank you. Well, here's, here's you to hoping much. we can uh, realign our schedule somewhere down the road where we can bring you back. Um, I would like to talk about the, the Yule project with the, the Yule goat that you've been doing over the last couple of years. Maybe oh, not, yes. not tonight, yeah. but uh, when we bring <laughs> it back, that, that is something that is very close to my heart and something that I would like to rope Sarenth into helping me kind of create oh. something here. Oh, I actually yeah. bought some Yule goats so we can do no, that. I mean like the full dress up masks, everything. Oh, I would love I'm to do that. It. Yes, yeah. and the, the Krampus knocked and all that. Oh yes, actually, there's <laughs> uh, there's something local to us, so we can talk about that after the show. For sure. Cool. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. I'm 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 game. As as you apparently already spotted, I have a lot of um, what do you say ball, balls in the air. Um, so <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> Any anytime you want to chat, you let us know, and we'll make sure we find some time ourselves. So absolutely. Cool. cool. Thank you so much for for being on the show with us tonight. Thank you to all of our listeners, our participants in the chat room, our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate all of you for this community that you're helping us to build. And uh, we will talk to you next time around the fire. Bye.